So the first person he sees, of course, is Frank. And he says, Frank, could you tell me, I'm here to see the Kaplan-Thaler group. What floor are they on? And Frank breaks out into this big smile. Now, he has no idea he's talking to the CEO of the fourth largest financial institution of the country, or that we were up for this $40 million account. He says, oh, I love these guys. They always have a friendly smile for me. You know, they bring me donuts. They always ask how my family's doing. I was sick once. They visited me in the hospital. He said, you're going to love these guys. Well, Richard Davis, who was the CEO at the time, he said, by the time I got to the 29th floor where you guys were, you didn't know this, but you had already won the business. And I said, how did that happen? He said, because I thought if they are that nice to the security guard, I can only imagine how nice they're going to be to my staff. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Well, I hope you put aside 45 minutes to an hour today to listen to this podcast from beginning to end, because I promise you, once you start listening, you won't want to put it aside. Today, my guest is Advertising Hall of Famer, Linda Kaplan-Thaler. Linda is responsible for some of America's most famous and award-winning advertising campaigns, including the Aflac Duck, the hilarious Yes, Yes, Yes commercials for Clairol Herbal Essence, the Kodak Moment, and America's longest-running jingle, I Don't Want to Grow Up, I'm a Toys R Us Kid. Ms. Thaler is a familiar face in the media, having appeared on The Apprentice, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and CNN. She hosted the Oxygen television series, Make It Big, and was a judge on The Apprentice and the Mark Burnett reality series, Jingles. Linda's talents have earned her the prestigious Matrix Award, the Advertising Women of the Year Award, the UJA's McVeigh Humanitarian Award, and was named one of Advertising Age's most influential women in advertising. Linda founded the ad agency Kaplan-Thaler Group, which she grew from a fledgling startup to a company with over a billion dollars in billings. Today, Linda is a renowned motivational speaker and is the national best-selling author of several books, including Grit to Great and The Power of Nice. And as a graduate of the renowned Upright Citizens Brigade Improv Company, Linda also conducts improv workshops online and in person to companies and organizations throughout the U.S. Well, this is a real treat. Thank you, Linda, for coming on. Oh, I, I'm absolutely delighted and haven't gotten through all of your book yet, but you do win the prize for coming up with the best title for a book. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, good. It's great. <laughs> you know where that comes from? That's a W.C. Fields quote. W.C. Fields was asked many years ago why his jokes were so funny. And his answer was, it's all in the delivery. And that kind of 
I heard I, that story and I never forgot that. I know, but being a baby dog is just perfect. It's absolutely yeah. perfect, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for coming on again. I've been a real fan of your first book, The Power of Nice, for quite some time. And there's actually a story behind that that I don't think we shared before. I was doing my communication training for doctors for about seven or eight years. The president of the hospital that I worked with was a real fan of what I was doing, teaching doctors communication and using improvisational role-playing that I want to talk to you about. And so we were talking about doing future projects and the president of the hospital said to me, you know, it's just like the power of nice. And I guess she read my body language and I have to admit, I hadn't been reading a lot of business books. So I wasn't familiar with it. And she's like, oh my God, this is the greatest book ever. You need to read this. So she just hands me her copy and then makes me swear that I will return to it. And then it was also about that time I read your book and I realized that the stuff that I was doing to teach doctors and nurses how to form relationships, how to really make the patient experience, which is medicine is all about now, as best as you could, or as I like to say, at least bad as you could, was very similar to what you're talking about in The Power of Nice and how being nice and compassionate and doing the right thing always wins. And that's when I started to realize that what I'm teaching doctors is applicable to the business world also. And so I didn't share that with you. So you kind of sent me, your book sent me on a new trajectory. That's so I want you to let you know that you're responsible for all this stuff that's happening. That's so cool. You know, there's a woman who's the head manager for the one that Mark Cuban owns. Dallas Mavericks. Yes. And so she's like their manager, coach, something. I don't remember. And she wrote me and she said, I want you to know that every new player that comes on has to read The Power of Nice. I think that's great. And it's so powerful. I mean, it's, it was your first book, right? I mean, there's four of them that you have now, correct? Yes. Actually, the first book was Bang, Getting Your Message Heard in a Noisy World. And I speak a lot about that too, is how to become more creative. We're all inherently very creative. We just have to learn how to tap into it. So That's great. So I want to talk about the power of nice. I know your story. I'm, as I said, I'm a big fan. Just for the audience to get to know you, you know, tell us about the girl that grew up in the Bronx that ended up owning her own advertising agency. And how did that happen? Well, I have to tell you, and here I'm going to go back into my Bronx accent when I used to go to Alexander's and I used to shop on Fordham Road. And not to be confused, the Bronx accent with the Brooklyn accent, which was my mother, my father were going, there's a real <laughs> big difference, you know. So I learned a lot of four, four letter words growing up in the Bronx, but the most powerful one was N-I-C-E. And that was because we didn't have any money. And the only currency that helped you was social currency. It's like, if you did a bad thing with one of your friends, the word spread. And so we just grew up to be as likable as possible. And one day my father, who's an amazing man, engineer and entrepreneur, and inventor, he took me to his office. And I was about seven years old and I was so excited because I thought my dad was the boss of this. And I guess he was the boss of that particular group. And he walked over to his assistant. In those days, we called them secretaries. Her name was Betty. And he said, hi, Betty, this is my daughter, Linda. Would you like me to get you a cup of coffee? And oh, she said, thanks, Marvin. That would be great. And as they walked away, I said, but daddy, she works for you. Why are you getting her a cup of coffee? And he said, well, you don't understand, Linda, is that the people who work, who help you, who assist you 
are the most valuable people in the company. And I want to make sure that she's very happy here. I don't ever want her to leave. When I opened up my agency, the very, very first thing I did is I told our little staff of five people the story about my dad. I don't think he realized that what he did had such an imprint on this seven-year-old girl that he ever thought I was going to end up owning a company that had a billion dollars in billings. And he was alive enough till 95 to see a lot of the success that we had. And I always thanked him for being the North Star in terms of how to run a company. We've had so many people on this podcast, you know, Claude Silver of VaynerMedia, Ann Barr Thompson, Holly O'Driscoll, and culture change and being nice is the hot topic right now, saying that you work for your employees, your employees don't work for you. And I feel like that was all started back when you did this groundbreaking, crazy idea that being nice actually makes you succeed. At the time, Robin Covell and I, she and I ran the company and written four books together. That was the founding principle, you know, in our agency. And that is why I believe the strongest reason that we became in very short period of time, the fastest growing agency in the United States and considered one of the top 10 nicest places to work in advertising. And people used to make fun of us and say, how can you be so productive and win so many accounts and be so nice? And I said, because the two work together. And, you know, they, there was a study that was done by Google a couple of years back called It Pays to Be Nice. And they tried to find out which of the teams and which of the groups were the most productive in the company. And their belief was it was going to be the groups that had the smartest people, you know, the Mensa IQs or the most talented people. And what they found was that the success of the group in terms of profitability for the company, you know, ideation and all of that, were not people who were the smartest or the most talented. They were the people that created what they called psychological safety. So in each group where they felt that psychological safety, that was the ability for people to throw out an idea, let them finish their sentence. That was a big deal, that people were allowed to sort of finish their sentences, that they were supportive, that people were not sort of talking at each other, but with each other. They go out for coffee later. They, it was all of those things that made them much more productive. And actually, research has shown that companies where there is a very nice and kind atmosphere have an average of 1% to 2% growth in the bottom line. So it really does pay to be nice. Harry Truman had a wonderful quote. He was considered probably one of the most unpretentious presidents of the United States. And he said, you can accomplish anything in your lifetime as long as you're willing to take credit for none of it. And I thought that, <laughs> I was, a that. Great, it was a great philosophy because what we did is, you know, we were a creative advertising shop. You know, if I threw out an idea and, you know, it just was stewing there and nobody was commenting and we'd talk and eventually somebody else would come up with the same idea. And the first thing I would say is, that's amazing. What a great idea. And Robin would say to me afterwards, she said, but Linda, you had that idea 10 minutes earlier. I said, but you don't understand. Robin, this guy, Derek, now believes it's his idea. He's going to work so hard. And so I tried to instill that. And, you know, in the advertising culture, it can be very cutthroat. It was that post-Mad Men era where you have to eat your young in order to survive. And we found that it was actually much, much better for us that people would work longer hours. They would help each other because they knew at the end of the day they would get credit for it. When we won the Wendy's account 
it was a $200 million account and we were this tiny little agency and we were competing against dozens of shops. We did everything above and beyond because, you know, Robin and I had this philosophy, especially as women, you have to do things 10 times harder to get noticed. And the way we found out that we won the account was that they didn't call us, but the guard who I can talk about, the wonderful guard who protected the whole building that we were in, said, there's a little girl here with braids and she's wearing this weird outfit. Could she come up? And they said, yeah. And that was, you know, the Wendy's mascot, right? The, the thing that's on the way. Uh, okay. Who's Dave, the founding father? That was his daughter, you know, Wendy. And that's what she looked like when she was a little girl. Anyway, she comes hopping and skipping up and she reads this letter saying that we want it, but we want you to read this letter that comes from the owners. And the first thing I did was I knew that I didn't want to be the one reading the letter. The first thing I did is I said, why don't we read a sentence at a time? And I gave it to somebody in the mailroom department. He read the first sentence. The second sentence was somebody in the graphics department. And another was an assistant. We went all around till, you know, a lot of people had spoken. And the client said to us, you know, your work was terrific. But honestly, there was other terrific work at other agencies. But we felt that you really understood Dave Thomas's reason for being successful. And it was called the Dave's Way. It was all about how you should treat employees with kindness and they will pass that on to the people that they're serving. And they said, and we made a bet that once that letter came, you would not read it yourself. You would pass it down. I said, really? He said, yeah. They had written down, I bet you that Linda's going to do that. And that is sort of part and parcel of the way the agency worked, making it a nice place to work and make people a lot more productive. You know, there's an old Italian saying, I'm from New Jersey, Italian from New Jersey, I live in Orlando now, but there's an old Italian saying that the fish rots from the head down. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying before. I don't think it's true, by the way, but it, it is a saying. And, and so when you're the leader and you're creating that kind of environment, it's infectious, right? It is. And by the way, the fish smells from the top down was the first piece of advice that my husband gave me. Wow. Well, is he Italian? He said, as you do, they will do. Yeah. And so we had this attitude, which is, you know, everybody's nice to people who can give them something, you know, a, a potential client, a, a boss. But we had this philosophy that you need to do it for everybody. You know, that saying how you do anything is how you do everything. And it's really true. And it, so it has to be in your DNA that you treat everybody with respect. And one of the people that we adored was the guard for our building, whose name was Frank. And we were just one tenant among, you know, hundreds of other people. You know, we were a small company at the time. And we just loved Frank. And, you know, on days where it was cold, we'd bring him hot tea. And he had been in the hospital once and people went to visit him. And he just had this really great smile. And one day we were up for between us and another agency for the U.S. bank business. They were at the time the fourth largest financial institution in the country. And what we didn't know is that the CEO was going to make a surprise chemistry check. He liked our work. He liked another agency's work. So it was down to us too. He wanted to see how we were when we weren't on, so to speak. So the first person he sees, of course, is Frank. And he says, Frank, could you tell me I'm here to see the Kaplan-Thaler group what floor are they on? And Frank breaks out into this big smile. Now, he has no idea he's talking to the CEO of the fourth largest financial institution of the country, or that we were up for this $40 million account. He says, 
oh, I love these guys. They always have a friendly smile for me. You know, they bring me donuts. They always ask how my family's doing. I was sick once. They visited me in the hospital. He said, you're going to love these guys. Well, Richard Davis, who was the CEO at the time, he said, by the time I got to the 29th floor where you guys were, you didn't know this, but you had already won the business. And I said, how did that happen? He said, because I thought if they are that nice to the security guard, I can only imagine how nice they're going to be to my staff. And ironically enough, so we won this that day, this $40 million account. And yes, we gave Frank a bonus. Very nice. (laughs) But, you know, it is fascinating that little things like that mean so much. Fortunately, our book did very well, continues to do well. And I was on the Martha Stewart show talking about the power of nice and all of that. And unbeknownst to me, somebody was watching it. It was Barbara Walters. And she said, I'm going to talk about this book on The View, which she did. And she's going around and talking about the book. And Rosie O'Donnell said, you know, because I had this one thing in the book that said, anything great that's happened in your life can usually be drilled down to something nice you did for somebody. And Rosie O'Donnell said, I had the epiphany on this show. And she said, I just realized when I was starting out, I auditioned for MTV to be a video DJ. And there were about 200 people auditioning. She said, I didn't get it. But I wrote the producer that auditioned me a thank you note for, you know, just accepting that I even would interview for it. He said, I was totally unknown. Unbeknownst to me, he calls me back and he said, of the 200 people that auditioned, You're the only person that thought to write me a thank you note. So here's what I'm going to do. We're starting this new station called VH1. Hmm. And yours is the only tape that I'm sending over. And so she got her start in VH1 as a video DJ. She said, all because I wrote a thank you note to the guy from MTV. I mean, it gives you an idea of how powerful it is. You know, one of our most fun accounts is the Aflac Duck. Yes, that's my favorite. Yeah, I have have a lot of favorite. That's an amazing story. Yes. That came about because we believe in, you know, really having a sense of humor when you're ideating that when people laugh, they're much more open to ideas and it arouses all this, you know, stuff inside of you, you know, endorphins and you just feel good. And so we're kidding around and we couldn't remember the name of what we were pitching. And they only had a 3% awareness. And I kept saying, it's Affleck. The name is Affleck. So after three weeks of this, our one art director said, say that again. And he pinched my nose. We're a very informal company, so you can pinch the CEO's nose. <laughs> and I went, Aflac. And he said, you know, apropos of nothing, you sound like a duck quack. You know, and the biggest <laughs> problem they were having is nobody could remember the name of the company. And he was laughing, thought it was a joke. And I'm like, ta-da! You know, which gives you an idea how brilliant you have to be to run an ad agency to know that when somebody quacks the name of a company, it could be a big thing. Anyway, we won it and it was great. And, you know, and their stock divided like four times over, they made billions. But the thing that I'm most happy about, and it really brings a tear to my eye, that Affleck is now so well known that when ducks see other ducks, they immediately think of supplemental insurance. So you know you've accomplished something. But anyway, so so we're winning it, we're doing well. And I said to Robin, you know, I'm trying to think about why did they call us in the first place? They're in Columbus, Georgia. We were in Manhattan, a very small agency at the time. So she says, I don't know, call up 
the owner. So I did. And he said, I said, I don't know you. So I didn't know you beforehand. He said, I didn't know you either. He said, but a very good friend of mine, we used to live in New York. And when I was looking for agencies to pitch, he said, you know, this very nice woman named Linda Kaplan took me out to lunch 10 years ago because I wanted some advice on advertising. I barely even remembered what he Anyway, he said, I've been looking for a way to thank her. So she just started this company. Why don't you just give her a call? At least put her on the list. And that is how we got to pitch the Affleck account because I took somebody out to lunch 10 years earlier. There you it's go. a great story. It, and it goes back to what your mother taught you. Do the right thing and, you know, do it right the first time. Be nice to people. Treat other people like you want to be treated. And things will follow. But, you know, in medicine and I'm sure in business, we get caught up with starting to, our outlook looks different. So as a physician, we become task-oriented and we forget to be nice or we forget that even though this might be our 35th patient for the day, this patient has been waiting for an hour in the waiting room. And so that's part of what I teach is to kind of, sometimes you have to remind yourself, but to create an atmosphere where people can remind the boss, I think is really important too. So we do this program in the hospitals called It's All in the Delivery, uh, same title as my book. And it teaches doctors and nurses how to bond with patients, reform these trusting relationships quickly. But it also allows that everybody who does this program in the whole hospital basically signs a contract that says, if I'm doing something wrong, that I'm going to get rushed during the day and I may not spend enough time with that patient, the housekeeper can go to the head of the whole hospital and say, Dr. Orsini, it's all in the delivery. It's a nice way of saying, it's a nice way of saying, and my, and I have to promise that my response will be, thank you, Linda. I, I forgot. There you go. I appreciate it. There you, um, go. there you go. It's all about creating environment. So one of the things that we keep talking about here, this is a, a program about communication. And one thing that keeps coming up, and I'd love your opinion on this. So you created this great environment and there's great leaders. As you mentioned, some leaders, the workers will do anything for them. Why do you think it's all about communication to be a good leader? Why do you think that it's still, even with the big emphasis on culture change, it's still a problem right now where leaders aren't able to communicate and appreciate the security guard. Now, I'll tell you a quick story. My last hospital that I worked for, there was a gentleman there. His name was Michael, and, and Michael was retiring after 30 years. Michael was the housekeeper in the neonatal intensive care unit. He had been there for like 20 years, and Michael cleaned the units. And we had a little party for him to show how much we appreciated him. And when we thanked him, he said, I should be thanking you because you've given me the opportunity to save lives. And I thought that was kind of odd, but in his mind, cleaning that crib. That's right. And he's absolutely right. He is saving lives because if he didn't do a good job, the babies would get sick. So everybody's important. So I guess this is a long-winded question of, do you think it's communication issues when leaders aren't effective and the employees aren't engaged? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things to blame, you know, trying to be nice in the age of mean, you know, it's, it is very hard. And we've seen leadership where people are not nice. And I think part of it, there's a lot of reasons. One is the media. We see reality shows that it's so cutthroat what we're watching. You know, even on The Apprentice, and I was on The Apprentice several years ago, 
you are made to believe because it's theater, right? That, you know, the, the cutthroat, they'll do anything. And, and that's what people in, you know, to a certain extent, it's, it's like a blood sport. You know, it's like, I want to see, you know, she's the, you know, Amorosa, you know, she's the mean one and all of that. And it's theater. It's not really how people behave. Most people, and I've met many, many CEOs running an ad agency, and the best ones, like A.G. Laffley at Procter & Gamble, he never said the word I ever in a speech. It was always we. He was like the quietest person in the room, and yet brilliant leader. And so I think the media is to blame. And even if you look at books in the nonfiction category, they're either very extreme right or extreme left. I guess most people in this country are extreme middle. But mm -hmm. what sells books is very divisive kind of rhetoric. The other thing is that the incoming amount of data makes it so hard to even look at somebody, right? I mean, Microsoft did this study that blew my mind. The average attention span of a human being is now eight seconds. And what makes this a milestone is that the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. So you, get, <laughs> you really get to understand like how pathetic it is. And of course, how can you be nice when you are constantly, you know, all this data is coming in and it's hitting these targets in our brain, the dopamine centers. I mean, you're a doctor, so you know better than me. And so it's like Pablum, we want more and more. We're never satiated. We're constantly getting this. I think in terms of messaging, the average person gets about five to 7,000 above messages a day. And so like cook spaghetti, you know, what's going to actually stick on the wall? And how can I focus on you, Dr. Orsini, when I've got all this other stuff flashing? And then this other thing that's happened with the virtual world we live in, it creates what's been called absence presence. Not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's the ability to physically be someplace. You know, you're in a conference room, but you are virtually someplace else. And so it's putting a stopgap on talking to somebody, you know, a stranger, you know, on a bus or a cab driver, you know, conversing, you know, with somebody who's in a new country there. I mean, all of that stuff, the idea to make small talk, and we talk a lot about the book in making small talk, becomes almost irrelevant. We got to focus on what we're doing. And yet what we learned is one of the most important things you do before that PowerPoint presentation is the five minutes you have of small talk. And small talk is around for a reason. It's around because evolutionary psychologists will tell you it is the way that we break down barriers, right? 100%, yes. So I meet you and I go, oh, you lived in New Jersey. Well, okay, I know a bridge I could take you to. I mean, we, we start creating <laughs> things, right? We actually interviewed and we actually did a film on them. I think it was in our later book, The Power of Small. I'm not sure if it was in Why Little Things Make All the Difference. Tacoma, Washington, and are reminded of this story because you were talking about the guy who was cleaning the cribs, how you made him feel so, so important as he was. So in Tacoma, Washington, several years ago, there was a woman named Anne Marie who would come in every day to get her cup of, I don't know, decaf latte, whatever it was. And Sandy was the barista. Now, no one ever talked to Sandy. It was a very transactional relationship. You know, what do you want? Here's your change except Anna Marie would talk to her. They were about the same age. They were in their mid-50s. 
she asked her, how you doing? They didn't even know each other's names, but they used to always have this friendly chit chat. Well, this went by for several months. And one day, Anna Marie walks in and Sandy can see that she's been crying and she doesn't look well. Her face is ashen. And she leans over and she says, are you okay? And Anna Marie breaks into tears. And she said, you know, I feel comfortable telling you this, but I need a kidney. You know, my kidneys are failing. And I just found out that nobody in my family is a blood match. So waiting for a donor and she's crying. And there's a long line of people waiting to get their decaf latte. And Sandy leads over. I always get chills when I think about this story. And she puts her hand on top of Anne Marie's and she says, you know what, honey? I'm going to get tested for you. Wow. And luck would have it. She was a perfect blood match. And now they share, besides sharing stories of their grandchildren, they've also you know, shared a kidney, right? And her husband said to Sandy, if you make any more friends, just don't give any more body parts away if you don't have to. <laughs> we invited them to New York. They had never been to New York. And we did a little film with them, which is on YouTube, called The Power of Small Talk. And I, we asked each of them to write a letter to each other. And so Sandy writes this letter and she reads it and she's talking about how you saved my life. You did something that no one else could do. And, you know, and Sandy reads her letter and she said, you did more for me. You gave my life meaning and a job that I thought was meaningless. You have made me feel so incredible about the power of what human beings can do for each other. And, you know, every time I hear this story, I cry. It's so amazing, the power of connections that we make or that we don't make because we decide to not make small talk with a stranger. That's a beautiful story. We're all about communication, and I know you do improv. And, in fact, you teach improv, right? I do. I don't think I'm particularly great at improv, but I'm great at teaching it. (laughs) You know, improv is very connected to business, as you know, because I know that's something that you work with a lot because of the yes and theory in improv when somebody says you're a scene partner and somebody says you're a two-headed toad, no matter what you thought you were going to be, you thought you were going to be Abraham Lincoln, but now you're a a two-headed toad, you have to go with it and expand on it. We did that a lot with our agency where we didn't allow people to say no. So if somebody threw out an idea, you'd have to yes and it and sort of improve on it and sometimes turn it around. And I always found that the best ideas were somebody's bad ideas that they felt comfortable enough talking about. But it also improves listening skills. We don't know how to listen to each other anymore. We process words faster than we talk. So when somebody's talking to us, about halfway through, we're already figuring out how we're going to answer them. And one of the things I talk about is uh, we should, more of us should just shut up and listen. We all want to feel like we're Mensa graduates and want to fill the room with our wonderful information. It's been said that we listen not to hear, we listen to respond. I think that's a big oh, issue. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And uh, Rabbi Kushner, who I'm a big fan of because I read all his books, he said, when you don't know what to say, say you're sorry and then shut up. And I, I love right. that. I use that during my 
But improvisational, as you know, I use improv in teaching physicians and and business leaders how to communicate and how to use nonverbal language. And I've learned so much from the actors that I work with. And these are big time actors. And you know, some of them are local, but some of them are very accomplished. And you learn a lot about communication. And I'm guessing that's that improv helped you because you're obviously a fantastic communicator. So, oh, well, thank um, you. so I want to move on though. God, I could talk to you for hours, but I want to move on because last time we spoke, you shared a personal story as we segue into healthcare and communication. And you shared a personal story with me about some difficult conversations that you had yeah. when you were sick. And if you don't mind sharing that, and we can kind of discuss no. the conversations that you had to endure. Yeah. And I wrote about it in actually a first book where at the age of 39, I, um, I hadn't formed my company yet. And my husband and I were trying to get pregnant and it was five years of miscarriages and it was awful. And here I'm approaching that magic age where maybe, you know, with the biological clock is ticking. And so I found out that I had breast cancer and I was fortunate. You know, I pulled through. My doctor, he was a brilliant surgeon. He had operated on my mother who had also had breast cancer and thankfully lived till the age of almost 95, like my dad, he calls me to tell me that, and I'm still at Sloan Kettering, that the lymph nodes were normal. I had a mastectomy and and he said, but I have something I have to tell you and bring your husband. What is it? Just bring your husband. You know, that sort of the woman isn't going to understand or, you know, Mm. move the hand. And so he wouldn't tell me, which was awful, really. And the next week we go see him and he tells me, don't get pregnant. Why shouldn't I get pregnant? I know you want to get pregnant, but here's why you shouldn't, you know, and you have a hormone-based cancer and who knows what will happen. And he had no bedside manner at all. He wouldn't explain anything to me. He wouldn't give me any comforting advice. I finally had to go to my GP. It was amazing who sat with me for an hour with people in the waiting room. And he was one of the best physicians in the country. He just retired. And he drew me pictures of what my particular cancer looked like and why I should feel good about what was done and how it was done. But to have a surgeon who was so short with me, I mean, even when I woke up from me, and he he didn't think I was with a biopsy, it was going to be cancer. He just didn't. And I wake up out of it. And he says, you have cancer. Uh, you get operated on next week. Wow. That's how I found out I had cancer coming out of, you know. That's terrible. You know, as you and I spoke before and people who listen to this knows that this is what I do because most people would be surprised that there's no training on how to deliver tragic news. There's no training on physicians on how to have difficult conversations, but it can be learned. And your doctor drew you pictures, but... Really, if you think about it, it wasn't the pictures that made you feel better. It was his comforting tone and his mannerisms, correct? Yeah, you know, he's the kind of guy, I had this awful bout of pneumonia several years ago, and then it turned into this weird virus where it just didn't go away. And it was just, I was, it was horrible. And I walked into his office, John Olichny, amazing guy, just an amazing guy. And he said, you know, you have this virus, blah, blah. I said, am I going to die? And he takes my hand and he says, Linda, 
you are going to die. <laughs> but you're not going to die of this particular virus. <laughs> he said, my job is not stopping you from dying. It's creating it to be a long-term procedure, if you will. But, you know, and it was that humor. And I have to tell you one amazing story, though, that came out. I did visit with Larry Norton, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's one of the top breast cancer oncologists in the country. And he was a Sloan Kettering. And he was the one who finally, after my doctor said I shouldn't try to get pregnant, he said, it's okay. And he told me why it was okay. And so he gave me that green light. And I said, thank you. And he said, no, I want to thank you because I don't usually get to give good news. Hmm. The cancer's gone, right? So fast forward eight years, I now have my son, Michael. I have two children. And Michael, the one Dr. Frankie told me not to have, became the kindergarten champion of chess in the United States. They wrote a book about him. He just graduated from Harvard with a PhD in economics. I mean, he's amazing. Our daughter's a musician. But anyway, I knew that Larry Norton was going to speak at this luncheon, this fundraising luncheon. And I said to the woman running it, can you please have me be the first person to raise my hand? You know, people want to ask a question or whatever. <laughs> she said, why? I said, I'll tell you why. So I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Frackia, you probably won't remember me. And then I told him the story that what he had said to me as I left, I said, thank you. And he said, you know what? Thank you. But the way you can thank me is send me a picture of your child when he or she is born. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. Right. So as I'm, so as I'm, we're going through this and he says to me, oh yeah, I remember. He said, well, where's the picture? I said, well, first of all, I have two pictures, our son and our daughter. But today I, uh, when, before I came here, I said to Michael, and he was like eight years all the time. I said, I want to tell you about a man that made it possible for you to be here today. And he decided to autograph the book. They wrote a book about him uh-huh. when he was seven. And so I gave Dr. Norton the book. He was in tears and he said, thank you for reminding me once again why I do what I do. And I heard later that they raised a lot of money at the lunch. (laughs) So so that was good. You know, they raised a lot of money for breast cancer research. It's such an impact in medicine on how you deliver that news, whether it's good or bad news. And it's all about relationships. And I always make it clear that I do truly believe that every doctor and nurse is compassionate, but that we're not taught. And sometimes we forget that's a human being on the other side because we get task oriented. I wish there were a nurse behind that doctor who tapped him on the shoulder and said, doctor, it's all in the delivery. Maybe he would have said, let me try again. My father was an amazing man. He had a heart attack when he was 55. And again, he had one of these doctors that didn't have any bedside manner. And my father woke up. He told me the story years later because he was embarrassed to tell it at the time. And he was a very, you know, brave kind of guy and serious and whatever. And he said, Linda, when I woke up after the surgery, I started to cry, really cry. And this Jamaican nurse took me in her arms. My father did not have a good childhood. He did not have good parents. He said, she took me in her arms and she said, Mr. Kaplan, it's going to be okay. But you can cry as long as you want. And he said, it was the most important part of my recovery of this Jamaican nurse telling me it was going to be okay. 
We're circling right back to the power of nice, aren't we? For those of you who haven't listened to every one of these episodes, I interviewed an amazing man called Marcus Engel, and he was one of the first podcast people that I interviewed. And I'll share with you his story very quickly. So Marcus was 19 years old, and he and his friends were on their way to a hockey game when they got T-boned. And his three friends died immediately. Marcus had multiple injuries, including immediate blindness. And Marcus was barely hanging on. He found himself, he woke up in the trauma bay. There's people putting chest tubes in him. There's people putting it into bay, and he can't see. So 19 years old, he's so afraid. He has no idea what happened. And there was someone who came over to him, grabbed his hand and said, Marcus, I'm here. And in fact, that's the name of Marcus's book. I'm here. And he didn't know who that was. He didn't even know if he hallucinated it. But all he knew is that it made him feel better. Well, Marcus, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but I think it was 20 years later, Marcus now teaches patient experience and he goes around hospitals. He's a professor at Notre Dame and he goes around hospitals teaching people what it's like to be a patient. He was giving a lecture at that hospital about patient experience and the chief of the hospital said, I have a uh, surprise for you. And there was the woman who was, goodness. she came out, turns out she was not a nurse. She was a tech. And so that person went to school and is now talk about giving good karma. She's now chief of nursing. And so what a great story. And I think it all circles back to your book, The Power of Nice, that little bit extra that your doctor does for you or that your boss does for you is just amazing. So in finishing up, I want to ask you just one more question. So what advice, because I have to give some valuable advice to get advice from Linda. I mean, this is awesome. What advice do you have to anyone, whether you're a boss, a leader, a CEO? Let's talk about CEOs. You're head of your own company and you need to be a better leader to get people to rally around you. I know be nice. Any communication advice that you would say, this is what you need to do to be successful? You know, it's interesting when I sold my company and they merged with this other company that had a very bad culture. And I'm a big believer because one of our other books is The Power of Small, Why Little Things Make All the Difference is, you know, that we're a nation that looks, you know, that forests through the trees. And I always say, no, the most important thing is the leaf. You know, it's the leaf that makes, ends up being the forest, right? So I am, I don't mean a micromanager in a bad way, but so important on small things. And when I was leaving the company that I had sold and there was a person who was taking over as CEO, It was a bad culture that she was fostering. And she said, what am I doing wrong? Before you leave, just tell me what I can do. I said, well, you can start by answering the emails that people are sending you. People would send me at the time before I actually left. You know, we at the time, at this time, there were 800 people in the company. And, you know, somebody would email that they had a good meeting at Procter & Gamble. And I would be on the CC list as well as this other woman and as well as the other C-suite people, you know, at the agency. And I would always, I didn't care if I was CC'd. I would go back. I said, great, you got to, that's fantastic. Or if I could walk by the office, I would stop by. I'd say, that's fantastic. If there was a good test score, we worked on a tremendous amount of pharmaceutical drugs. You name it, we worked on it. So as you know, to go through trials takes years. So if you had a good test score, and I would always answer them. And people would always answer me back and say, you realize you're the only person of the managers that ever emails us back. And so this woman said to me, oh, but I'm busy. And I said, oh, no. I said, Michael Dell answers 
800 emails a day, and he's a very busy person. I said, Michael Bloomberg has given out his personal phone number. I said, you can't be busier than them. And I said, it takes about five seconds to actually say, glad you had a great meeting. So my advice to people is always start with really small things. I would always, if anybody in the company would find out when their birthday is, I'd put it on my calendar and I'd wish them happy birthday. And they, were, they couldn't believe the CEO remembered their birthday. It was such a small thing, but it's what builds up a groundswell of how you behave. And now I'm happy to say that so many people in our company from years ago have their own companies and they always say, we teach the methods that you and Robin taught and we're trying to continue doing that. And so that makes me feel incredible because you create a fertile universe, right? You create your universe and the more positive imprints are like seeds. They come out They're going to grow in ways you can't imagine, and you probably won't even know about them for 10 or 20 or 30 years, but they will grow. So I always tell, especially young people, don't worry about networking, call it nice working, figure out how many people you can do or say something nice to, and those flowers will bloom. Great advice. So be the head of the fish. Exactly. If you're a good head of the fish, everybody will thrive. My my uh, problem is, though, I only eat it at filleted, so I never even get to see the head. Well, every week I promise my audience two things, that they'll be inspired and that they will learn valuable communication techniques. And I certainly have done that this week. You are amazing. I wanted to talk to you about Grit the Great. So maybe I'll put you on a spot and get you to come back on to talk about that another time. I would be delighted to. You are one of the best interviewers and I'm so happy for the work you do because I know it's imprinting on so many thousands of people. So everybody heard that she agreed to come back on. So this is the first time I've ever offered that. And by the way, I'm fine. If anybody wants to communicate with me, it's just Linda Kaplan prod, P-R-O-D like production at gmail.com. Or you can visit my website, Kaplan Thaler Productions. And just maybe something will spark your interest. Thank you, Linda. We'll put all that stuff on the show notes. If you enjoy this podcast, please go ahead, hit subscribe and download all the previous episodes. If you need to get in touch with me, I'm at theorsiniway.com, or you can email me directly at drorsini at theorsiniway.com. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day, everybody. And thank you again for interviewing me. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team, or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.